0: Yesterday, in addition to those incredible marches for freedom and solidarity uh, in Paris and uh, throughout France, the Attorney General, Eric Holder, said the possibility of a Paris-style terrorist attack in the United States is very real and keeps him, quote, up at night. Now, the first thing I thought was, please don't give the terrorist ideas, uh, (laughs) A.G. Holder. Please, please, please. And don't let them know that this keeps you up at night because that helps them to sleep better. You know what I'm saying? I mean, look, I'm all for transparency, but we're just showing too much of our damn hand sometimes. My mother used to say, don't say your fears out loud. You, want, you don't want the devil to know what you're afraid of. Something about that. You know how they say, speak it into existence, you know, positive speaking, positive thinking. Don't get me wrong. I'm not smoking some kind of a pipe here and, you know, all high on uh, flowers and rainbows and the idea that if we don't talk about what keeps us up at night and don't talk about our fears that the Paris-style attack, terrorist attack in, France, in Paris is very real here in the United States, uh, that it won't happen. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that I think we all know that this type of an attack is a very real possibility here anywhere in the world. We're a very large country. We're a huge democracy and a leader in democracy. But then again, our newspapers have not been negatively portraying the Prophet Muhammad and angering some of these groups. Then again, these groups don't like freedom of the press or of speech. And then again, perhaps we have more security in many of our media outlets, where the LA Times, the New York Times... Washington Post, places like that, are housed. But he's the attorney general, and these things should keep him up at night. But I don't think that you let the terrorists know. I don't think you show your hand. This is what uh, Attorney General Eric Holder told CBS's Face the Nation yesterday. I certainly think that the possibility of such attacks exists in the United States. It is something that we worry about all the time. It is something that we meet about all the time. As well, it should be. You know, folks, I think we have this idea that there wasn't terrorism before 9-11. And that 9-11, we entered into the world of terrorist attacks. That was a big one. And like earthquakes, they won't happen but for a long time. And maybe some even believe that was it. That was the biggie, never again. And I think that's ignorant. I think it's ignorant. When we see what happened with Sony, when we see what happened today with the cyber attack, this is the world we live in. There are fundamentalists out there who are angry. They're angry at the West. They're angry at Israel. They're angry at freedom. They're angry at anything. And I know some would say, oh, it's because of Islam and Muhammad and Allah. No, no, no. No. <laughs> They that's a lovely excuse or, you know, a tagline or something they can put on their jacket. But the reality is they just like power. I was listening to an interview this morning about ISIS and Al Qaeda. And do you know they're in competition with each other? So Al Qaeda watches ISIS behead some people and they well, well, screw that. We're going to beat that. And they're high fiving the fact that they killed. Seventeen. when ISIS beheaded a handful. Disgusting, isn't it? This kind of disgusting activity takes place in gangs in the United States and elsewhere in the world. It just doesn't get the international media attention that when you put the word terrorist in front of it, it does. The bottom line is that terrorism has been around long before 9-11 And the United States somehow felt that it would be and could continue to be immune from that. And that, I believe, was ignorant, and therefore we were not prepared. And we need to be prepared. When the Attorney General says it keeps him up at night that the possibility of a Paris style terrorist attack is very real, there are a couple of things. One, don't show the terrorist your hand, two, don't give him ideas. 3 it should keep you up at night you are the attorney general and and and, and 4 not out of his office the doj but because uh, that's you know prosecutorial uh, you know position after the fact but we don't need after the fact we need prevention if the attorney general is being kept up at night that the possibility of this type of terrorist attack is very real and and impossible here in the and and possible in the united states How much more Homeland Security, how much more the president, how much more the FBI, the Pentagon, the CIA should be losing sleep? And how much more preparedness, preparation, and prevention we should be addressing? He said, quote, what we saw in France over the course of this last week is unfortunately what we're going to have to confront in the future. And I agree with him, except if we get rid of Al-Qaeda and ISIS, which is possible. You know what's hard to get rid of? It's the ideology. It's not the terrorist in the groups. It's the ideology. And I'm not talking about a religion. I'm talking about their messed up, screwed up ideology. Let's uh, get to our guest. Kevin Cirilli is a finance reporter for The Hill. He's author of its financial services newsletter, Overnight Money. Uh, but he doesn't just talk about finances. He does talk about news, uh, not just uh, at The Hill, but certainly on television, on MSNBC. Kevin, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon. Welcome back to the program. Happy Monday. How Thanks for you?
1: having me. Happy New Year. How are
0: you? Good. Happy New Year. That's right. I haven't talked to you since uh, before yeah, the New Year. Yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was just talking about, and we invited you to uh, talk uh, briefly about the um, – Comment by Attorney General Eric Holder yesterday about the possibility of the uh, Paris-style terrorist attack that in the United States, this is a, a very real possibility that it keeps him up at night. I think a lot of people today are like, hey, it's really great we have all these marches after the fact, really great we can go. Now we know where they were, where they trained, who they were after the fact. And I think a lot of people in France, the United States and worldwide are tired of after the fact. So the first thing is. Should Attorney General Eric Holder admit he's up, being kept up at night and, in a sense, give terrorist ideas or show them his hands, that he's fearful? Well, you know, a lot of the
1: government officials have always spoken about their concerns with terroristic threats, especially if you think back during uh, the aftermath of the September 11th attacks. Remember when we had that color-coded watch alert? system where there were different color codes for our, our threat level. But you're right. I mean, I think especially the, in, in the reaction following the terrorist attack, you look at sort of the tone that has been coming from the administration, uh, most notably, of course, with uh, some of the criticism for uh, the U.S. officials not attending some of the uh, services uh, in France, uh, the White House admitting just a couple of hours ago that that was a mistake, Um, And so, you know, I I do think that there's a conversation that's being had right now about our level of preparedness and as well as our response to what has become global type of attack.
0: Uh, Yes, most definitely. But, you know, I guess I I don't know, Kevin, maybe. And, you know, look, you know, I'm I'm a liberal. I'm more so of a pacifist. I love my country. I was born here. But I expect somebody like the attorney general to stand up and say, this is the United States of America. We are a democracy. We stand for freedom. We're leaders in freedom. And we won't let threats like this. Keep us down. We realize that we are vulnerable to attacks such as this, but that won't stop us from our freedom of the press, blah blah blah, and citing the First Amendment, rally the troops,
1: fireworks. You know what I'm saying? You know that that's a great point, and and this is criticism that we've seen from uh, the Attorney General before, as he's in his final couple of weeks uh, with this. But you know, I, I think you're right. I think that that you know what's what's interesting about what's happened in Paris. Uh, is is the response from the administration and I think that they're taking a lot of criticism for it today. It's been a, a botched response of the critics have pointed out, and even their supporters like yourself uh have have mentioned but it's it's something that I think um you know, is not the type of response that we're used to seeing after this level of an attack. Usually we see a lot of um, coherent messaging coming from the administration. And in this case, I think that a lot of folks have raised the point that, you know, this maybe isn't the type of response that they're used to hearing or necessarily the response that they want to hear after something like this.
0: Most definitely. Speak about re- response. Talk uh, to us. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, let's talk about the president and Obama administration response outside of the DOJ and the attorney general's comments yesterday on CBS's Face the Nation. We are back with Kevin Cerrilli, finance reporter from the Hill, author of its financial services newsletter, Overnight Money, but he also does the recap of the week's political headlines on television on MSNBC's First Look every Friday morning. Good friend of the show to like him a lot as a guest and good to have him with us and i say that because you might say well why is he talking about the response and he's a finance guy well he does news and politics too kevin thanks for holding welcome back speaking of what was the response and the frustration with that response by the obama administration uh uh, you know we've already talked about attorney general holder's uh, response but his response the president
1: well thanks for having me and uh, you know the white house said press secretary Josh. Josh Ernest told reporters today that they really messed up in not sending a higher-profile representative to this weekend's Solidarity March in France uh, after the terrorist attack. And the quote-unquote, I'm quoting here, Josh Ernest when he said, It's fair to say we should have sent someone with a higher profile to be there. Had the circumstances been a bit different, I think the president himself would have liked to be there. Um, and, you know, th- there were, there were uh, a lot of... Uh, Attorney General Eric Holder, who was actually in Paris earlier that weekend, um, didn't even attend the march. So there were not really hardly any high-level officials who attended this, this march that was covered, you know, vastly by the global media. Um, and the White House saying that that was a screw-up and that they didn't want to uh, – they didn't need to do that. But, in like, you know, I, I think just the – can you imagine if this had happened in America – and England or France or um, Germany didn't send a a high-profile political figure to attend a march or a a memorial service? Can you you imagine the the conversation we'd be having? Oh.
0: (laughs) Um, Yeah, there would be T-shirts already against that country with X's through them and things.
1: Remember the Freedom Fries debacle and that whole thing? And, you know, Secretary of State John Kerry... Uh, as, as really what's being perceived here in Washington as, as trying to damage control, not attending this march, uh, is actually planning on going to France later this week. So, I mean, a lot of, uh, awkward type of political posturing happening now, uh, trying not to offend, uh, anyone, uh, in, in uh, as a result of this attack. The um, fallout my- of it, yeah. You know,
0: and, and, and OK, so we don't have and I agree with you. I mean, Secretary of State Kerry is supposed to go Thursday. He couldn't have gone a few days later. It's not like he can't get a flight. Um, and Eric Holder, no excuse. Um, but that's not the only response that Americans are referring to. Correct.
1: Well, no. I mean, they're also upset, I think, with you, the, the two of the folks that were that were arrested and now uh, killed and, and responsible the terrorists who are responsible for this. They were on a watch list, Leslie. They were on the watch list uh, for, for terrorists. And somehow this still uh, happened. So there's a lot of questions being asked about this watch list and how folks were able to still, uh, you know, organize and still um, uh, organize and, and carry out uh, this type of catastrophic attack. And I think it's raising questions about our own level of. Dirty. um and no one likes to, to kind of have the, the that fearful terrorism storyline narrative in the media but when, when something like this happens i think it's just unfortunately what has to the conversation that has to take place and when you've got a terrorist watch list, leslie a watchlist and you've got two folks on there what's the point of having a list if you're not going to watch them how are they even like out there uh, being able to organize that's another criticism that we're hearing as well
0: most definitely. I mean, I think a lot of people are just like, well, isn't it lovely that, you know, we can, you know, have these marches and all these speeches and everybody's, you know, sorry and hugs and kisses and kumbaya. But again, France knew that he, he, had, he had been in Yemen training. Yemen knew. The United States knew. On a watch list. Already served 18 months for terrorism.
1: I mean, think about that, 18 months for terrorism. And I think-
0: well, I mean, honestly, in their defense, they didn't have enough evidence to give him more. As a matter of fact, he was he was sentenced to 18, served the 18. And then again, you know, they definitely don't have as strict sentencing in France as they do in the U.S. Kevin, you know, I love you. Happy New Year, buddy. We'll be talking to you again uh, throughout this great New Year of 2015 although it had a terrible start to it uh, in the country of France. Kevin, thank you for joining us. Quick break. We'll be back. Second guest for the second hour here on the show is up right after this. Don't go away. Don't miss it.
2: Leslie Marshall, the simple truth in a complicated world. Give her a call now at 888 6
0: Danielle Droich, a senior attorney with NRDC, the National Resources Defense Council, is our guest. She directs the Canada program. They have a major focus on Canadian tar sands development and the proposed Keystone XL tar sands pipeline. More than a pleasure to have with us, Attorney Droich, or uh, may I call you Danielle? Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Danielle, uh, there have been sweeping statements made by the Speaker of the House and the House of Representatives here in the United States uh, talking about how the Keystone XL can't withstand uh, scrutiny, Uh, responding to the president's declared intention to veto a bill, the bill forcing approval of the proposed Keystone XL tar sands pipeline. In a press, press release, he made numerous claims that it can't stand up. Uh, to scrutiny, um, and uh, a lot of people would say that you know he's actually helping to underscore what's really at stake with the Keystone XL pipeline, and also uh, what isn't. Um, let's talk about um, a, a few uh, a few things here. Um, there are people that have opposed the project on a scientific basis. Over a hundred climate scientists and climate economists. There are six unions, even nur- National Nurses Union. Uh, Two million comments sent. In during the public uh, process the review process and it's far more than weighed in for the pipeline including over 140 public interest groups veterans 100 mayors over 200 businesses and these businesses finance create a work and development of more than 1700 companies of course native americans farmers ranchers living along the proposed pipeline route uh, the list goes on um, so uh, first, first of all This, maybe it can't withstand the scrutiny because it should not be built.
2: That's exactly right. Thank you so much for uh, pointing out that there's a wide diversity of voices from across the United States that have weighed in against this pipeline. Uh, There's been a, uh, a number of people who have basically found that this pipeline is all risk and no reward. There is a number of impacts in this pipeline, whether it's uh, risking water supply from an oil spill, um, bringing it tremendous climate impacts, and right now the American public is very concerned about the climate. And then it's for very little reward. Uh, This pipeline, actually, the number of permanent jobs that will be created from this pipeline is 35. Um, There will be a couple of thousand construction jobs certainly created during the building of the pipeline, but many Americans are focused on what is the total job number, and it's not that many, maybe a couple of thousand at most. And this is one of the big things that the president has been focused on is, is this pipeline in the national interest? This pipeline will not lower gas prices, and what many don't realize is that most of this uh, oil will be exported. So it's really an all-risk and no-reward proposition. Uh, most
0: definitely. Do you feel that the statements by Speaker Boehner actually help those who are on side of doing against what he and his fellow Republicans in the House and the Senate want to do, which is pass this legislation to build this pipeline?
2: Well, this this legislation that's being considered, uh, the House uh, passed the legislation on Friday, and uh, the Senate's going to be taking the legislation up the president has actually already said that he was going to veto this Correct. legislation. And so really, what is the point? What is Congress trying to do right now? Basically, they want to put a, a bill before the president that he vetoes. They're just trying to create a situation where they are in uh, direct opposition. This is not about bringing jobs to the American people. It is not about bringing uh, putting boots on the ground, helping the American public get back to work. This is really about uh, our new Republican Congress wanting to uh, have a confrontation with the president. And this is the first piece of legislation that they're really debating. I don't know that this is really the best use of their time. Uh, no, I agree because of it. Then again, this is
0: symbolic. And this is, you know, to say, look, the president doesn't want to create jobs when at the end of the day we're talking maybe 50.
2: That's right. That's right.
0: The, the, and, so the, the, and the greater the 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 risk is far greater than the reward, even if it created 500 jobs, it's still not worth the risk. Can you talk to us about what's happening in the state of Nebraska that certainly would be heavily affected by the building of this pipeline? There was some legislation on a state level there.
2: That's right. Uh, the the state of Nebraska passed some legislation a couple of years ago that would actually. Uh, established that the route of the pipeline. The reason the route is so important is that there is something called the Ogallala Aquifer. Um, This is an aquifer that millions of people and especially farmers and ranchers rely on. Um, It goes through America's heartland. It is is such an important water supply. And the pipeline has been proposed to go straight through the aquifer um, through the Nebraska Sandhills. Which is where these farmers and ranchers—that's um, their lifeblood. That's what they they use all the time for their um, for their farms and ranches. And so the Nebraska legislature passed a law that uh, enabled the the site of the route to be um, placed. And the uh, a couple of farmers and ranchers challenged that law and said that the way that the law was uh, passed by the Nebraska legislature was unconstitutional. On Friday, the Nebraska Supreme Court, the majority of the court, ruled that the law, in their view, was unconstitutional. But because of a technical uh, uh, rule for the Nebraska Supreme Court, that particular um, opinion didn't stand. And so basically the route that I described that goes straight through this aquifer region um, is still the route. It's the route that um, TransCanada has proposed, and what is going to happen um, is uh, now the State Department will look at, the, look at that route and decide whether um, it's the best route for uh, Nebraskans. We certainly hope that the, that the State Department will look at that route, look at all the other issues that we've raised, and will find that the pipeline is not in the national interest.
0: Definitely not national interest. When we talk about, you know, just Nebraska and just those farmers, technically as many jobs or more could be destroyed as uh, created with the building of this pipeline. And then we'll talk about the more dangerous aspects environmentally and, and otherwise after that. Sure,
2: something that a lot of people don 't realize is that we 're talking about Canadian tar sands. This is not your mom and pop 's oil the, the stuff that we you know see coming gushing out of the ground in um, Texas and other places this is This is a very different type of oil. You actually can hold it in your hand at room temper- temperature it 's very, very heavy. Um, it requires a tremendous amount of water and energy in order to try to get that oil out of the, the sands. Um, and uh, when it's being pushed through a pipeline, um, it's very it has to be mixed with a lot of different chemicals in order to get it through that pipeline. So it's nothing like conventional oil. So what we've learned, and we know this from two major tar sands um, uh, spills here in the United States, in Michigan and in Arkansas, that when tar sand spills, it sinks in water. It's actually completely different than conventional oil. It does not uh, float on the surface, so you can't use booms the way you you perhaps saw with the BP spill. So what we really, um, we have a very different type of oil. It's much harder to clean up. And in the case of the Kalamazoo, Michigan river spill, um, it actually was impossible to clean up. So there will be always a legacy of tar sands oil in that river system
0: and this makes a, a difference added to the whole idea of the environment and what a pipeline being built underground especially going under uh, near drinking water and water for agricultural purposes and water that animals are drinking uh that we then uh, consume products from or the entire animal if you're e- if you eat meat um uh and and that goes far beyond the job aspect but because these are canadian like you said tar sands these are coming from the canadian tar sands That's an added bonus of negativity for this project.
2: That's right. I mean, this is a foreign, we're talking, this is a foreign pipeline. Uh, the company TransCanada is the one who's building it. Um, the money, this is really about helping Canada's tar sands industry grow. This pipeline, pipelines are not about job creation. I mean, there is a purpose for a pipeline, and it's not to create jobs. So it takes about 35 jobs to, to actually operate the pipeline. Most of this is about helping the oil industry upstream um, expand, um, and there's a lot of costs that uh, come with um, helping that particular industry expand upstream. It's not in America's best interest to help that uh, make that happen and there's a tremendous impact upstream in Canada um, and many of your uh, listeners may not even be aware of those impacts but, but I can tell you um, having lived up there myself that there, there is uh, the impact to Canada's boreal forest and the communities that live near these massive mines. I mean they're huge and they cover an area the size of Florida. This is really, um, this is a kind of an environmental disaster that we actually need to uh, step away from um, globally if we're ever going to confront uh, the climate issues of our day.
0: We're going to take a quick break we'll be back with our guest and if you want to join us 888 leslie 888-653-7543 senior attorney with the National Resources Defense Council she directs the Canada program there's a major focus there on the Canadian tar sands tar sands excuse me development those are proposed uh, as part of the Keystone XL tar sands pipeline Danielle Droich is her name pick up the phone and tell us yours 888 leslie 888-653-7543 follow the NRDC on Twitter at NRDC Follow our guest at Pembina, D-C-P-E-M-B-I-N-A. And the website for the NRDC is nrdc.org. Back to our guest and you right after this. Welcome, welcome back. Only true Democracy and Talk Radio. Danielle George, senior attorney with the National Resources Defense Council, is our guest. Danielle, I understand not that a lot of people get their news and sound bites, but I know that not every person in the United States is ignorant. So please explain to me when our gas prices are already low, and this will do nothing to lower gas prices. Please explain to me where the economy is improving and that the unemployment rate is 5 and change percent and continues to drop, and that this will not create a lot of permanent jobs in both the short and long term. Why anybody would support a pipeline from Mexico to Canada and the oil going out into the world market and not being brought into the United States. Could, could you give me one benefit of the Keystone Pipeline that these people are supporting that aren't these aren't heads of these huge
2: corporations that would benefit from this? This pipeline really benefits Big Oil. This, from the very very beginning, uh, this campaign for the pipeline has been waged by Big Oil. The Big Oil backers are behind the pipeline. They are the ones paying for the campaigns. They're paying for the campaign ads. They're paying for uh those in Congress who are supporting the pipeline. There isn't um, there isn't a strong I'm not saying that there isn't any uh American people behind this. I don't wanna uh suggest that there aren't individuals that are behind this, but the if you were to look at the machine behind supporting the pipeline, it's not a lot of public interest organizations. There are some um, unions that are for the pipeline, but for the most part, this pipeline is really about helping big oil get oil from Canada to the Gulf Coast, where it's refined, and then it can be sold overseas. And there's a lot of money to be made, billions of dollars. But we have to see through all of that and look at what is what are the facts here. And the facts are something the State Department has already confirmed for us. The number of jobs is low. Um, there will be no effect to gas prices, the majority will be exported. Those are all facts. Um, And then the environmental impacts, uh, they are hotly debated, but the scientists are coming out and saying this is a problem. So we have to look at this and understand that this pipeline is, it's really easy to reject. There's much bigger environmental issues for us to be uh, fighting over. It, this is not. This should be a very easy decision for us. We currently in the United States, we are fine when it comes to oil production. We have had huge reductions in um, our oil demand, uh, which is the most important thing for us. And we've also uh, have lots of U.S. oil production going. We've had more oil production surging since the pr- proposal for the pipeline in the last uh, three to four years. Um, Than for the past several decades, we are we are not in a situation where this is a this is a desperate situation.
0: And we have contributors like the Koch brothers that have given over six million dollars to political campaigns. What? Um, You know, when you total up how much was contributed by huge uh, companies that have interest in oil and gas, like you said, big oil and other companies with interest in oil and gas, like the the Koch industries, they contributed more than 70 million dollars to federal candidates in the 2012 cycle. So for a lot of these politicians, the only reason they're pushing this through is they made a promise when they received a check.
2: That's right. And there's been a a couple of organizations out there, Oil Change International being one of them, that has actually taken the time for every single vote on this pipeline. We've had a number by by now, and connected the money right back to the vote. Um, and, in fact, with the Koch brothers, uh, the Koch brothers actually own a lot of tar sands in Canada. They are actually the ones who are upstream. They, they not only own the actual oil resources, but they own a lot of the refineries, and the, um, not the pipeline itself, but a lot of the infrastructure along the way. So the Koch brothers directly have a vested interest in this particular pipeline being built. Uh,
0: somebody on Twitter asked a question that I think is the perception of a lot of Americans. Why do you want it stopped when it offers so many benefits? It frees us from Saudi Arabia. It doesn't free us from
2: our oil dependency, does it? This particular pipeline, no, it doesn't. I mean, if you're going to get to what's really going to free us from oil dependency, it's going to be reducing our demand for oil. That's the number one thing we can do. Swapping our addiction from one country to another country, whether it's Saudi Arabia or Venezuela or Canada, that doesn't make a difference. And here's why. because Well, go ahead. No, no, you go. Well, just that we have these we have these huge fluctuations, right, with oil prices. We're experiencing this right now. All of a sudden, oil prices drop, and that has a huge and profound impact on our economy. And it's because we're so addicted to these uh, to, to basically foreign oil. What we have to do is we have to start to drive down demand. And there's so many opportunities for us to do that. But the mere swapping to say we're going to go from Saudi Arabia to Canada, which is a fallacy. You can't actually do that. It's not the way the oil, uh, the world oil market works. We will continue to be importing oil from Saudi Arabia and from the Middle East, not because it's uh, a, a foreign policy decision. It's because of the way our oil markets work. So what we have to be doing is not looking at this as a simple uh, equation. It's really about making the right decision about our local oil production and demand, and, um, and saying no to projects like this, which really don't bring any benefit to the United States.
0: Um, let, but let's talk about, uh, you know, Washington posted a piece, and it had three Pinocchios for the president on the claim that the United States wouldn't get any of the oil, okay, because I want, I want facts here. Now, the crude oil would travel to the Gulf Coast, and allegedly it will be refined into products such as motor gasoline and diesel fuel, known as a distillate fuel in the trade. Um, The refineries on the Gulf Coast say they're eagerly awaiting the Canadian crude because they don't have enough oil in that area to feed the refineries. Is there any truth to that, or is the Washington Post lying about the president not being truthful uh, in, in full with regard to the oil refineries on the Gulf Coast?
2: Well, the president was absolutely correct in saying this oil is not destined for the United States. Uh, most of the, I mean, it's true that the, there, there, there will, this product will be refined in the Gulf Coast. So it is true that there will be refi- it will be refined there, and so there will be uh, benefits to, uh, I guess, the refineries on the Gulf Coast, but let's in a moment make sure we talk about some of the, the downsides to that. Um, and then it would be exported, because right now the Gulf Coast it, uh, exports refined products. So the, the Washington Post was correct in, in, in saying that, oh, well, it's not quite crude oil, it's refined products. But, if, but let's just be clear. When this pipeline was sold to the American public by the American Petroleum Institute, by TransCanada, by the oil companies, they sold it saying that this is about producing uh, uh, gasoline for Americans. That's how they sold it. And the truth is, is that this is really about uh, oil that's going to be first refined and then exported. So it's really not about helping American, U.S. American energy security. If you care about refinery jobs in the Gulf Coast, yes, it will help um, some of those refinery jobs. But be aware that the communities on the Gulf Coast have uh, basically stepped up and said that they're very, very concerned about the heavy tar sands coming to their refineries. We have learned that tar sands um, is actually because it has these chemicals in the pipelines as it's getting, being transported down. Oh, actually- Danielle, we are,
0: we, we've run out of time. Danielle, we will have you back. And I'm sorry, i just wasn't very intently listening on to what you said. Danielle Droich, Senior Attorney with the NRDC, the National Resources Defense Council. Back after that. Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment.